Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace, all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. It makes certain sense that, you know, the foreign policy begins at home, which is to say, if we want to compete with China, if we want to rebuild, build, have some democratic renaissance around the world, that starts with trying to get our own house in order. And that itself is going to be extremely difficult and very, very well. Uh, if I had to bet, I would bet, sadly, that in a lot of ways, they're going to fail in that. That was Peter Beiner, writer, professor, thought leader, blogger. Peter Beinert is a professor of journalism and political science at CUNY, contributing opinion writer at the New York Times, editor-at-large for Jewish Currents, and a CNN contributor. Recently, he started a weekly newsletter, The Beinert Notebook, featuring his thoughts on some of today's most pressing political challenges at home and abroad. He joins us today to talk about the challenges ahead for the Biden administration and for the country as a whole. We discuss Israel, China, the election, with a little bit of Walter Lippmann, Abraham Joshua Heschel, Reinhold Niebuhr, and Woody Allen thrown in to help us out along the way. I kind of want to begin there with the, the vast array of things that you've chosen for your role as public intellectual. Because you're writing for the New York Times now, you have a blog um, with these Zoom sessions, and I'm assuming that as a professor of journalism, you've thought about how journalism's changed and how the role of public opinion has changed. And really what I want to ask you is, do you expect to speak to different audiences with each one of these mediums? How do you think about how you're positioning yourself? So I guess I have a couple of answers to that. I mean, part of this is just the enormous flux that's going on in journalism itself, uh, in which there's a kind of, on the one hand, many, 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 many more platforms than there were when I was entering the field in the 1990s. On the other hand, many of those platforms are much more unstable. So in a way, the old model, which was you just kind of hitch your cart to one big kind of mothership, you know, kind of like going to work at General Motors or something, you know, in journalism, that doesn't work as well. Generally, you have to, in some ways, to try to keep up with all of these things and to hedge your bets against the instability of different publications. In some ways, it makes more sense to try to have an array of different relationships. So that's answer number one, which is not particular to me at all. I think there, you see lots of different people doing that in different ways. What may be more particular to me, although again, it's not, not, I'm not the only person, is that I have two different kinds of things that I want to do, both of which are very important to me, but neither of which alone would make me happy. And one is to try to speak to a general audience on American politics and foreign policy. And the second is a deeper and more parochial interest, which is essentially talking about Israel-Palestine and particularly inside the Jewish community. In a sense, a big question in my life in general for me is the question of how 
to figure out the balance between particularism and universalism, which is a, a tension that runs throughout Torah itself. And so in a way, my journalistic life is also an effort to balance those two impulses, the particularistic and the universalistic. And so some of those platforms are more particularistic and some of them are more universalistic. So in terms of models from the past mm -hmm. of thinkers who have taken sort of the Jewish issues, but really talked in a way more universalistic context. Who are your, your mentors and your heroes in this regard? It's an interesting question. I mean, I, the people who immediately come to mind are not necessarily journalists, although there are other journalists who I think do do this. I think but if you look at Jonathan Friedland in the UK, for instance, who writes a column for The Guardian and also writes a column for the Jewish Chronicle, the Jewish newspaper there. I think he's also very self-consciously trying to have a space in both of those worlds. But then there are other people who are not necessarily journalists who I think have tried to do that. So again, although I, I certainly would not compare myself to him in, in stature uh, or moral authority at all, if you look at you know Abraham Joshua Heschel, Heschel was someone who was both going deep in Jewish tradition, he's writing about uh, the prophets, he's writing about Shabbat and many things, right, but also trying to have a moral voice on things like the war in Vietnam. More recently, although his politics are not exactly aligned with mine, and again, although I would not want anyone to come away thinking that I am of his stature, recently deceased Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the, his, the writing of his that had the most impact to me is his really writing his writing on weekly Torah portion, but he was also someone who wrote about, about bioethics, about multiculturalism, about broad questions in society. As long as we're on the topic of Jewish issues, mm. one of the things that's really inspiring about your thinking is the way in which it evolves. Mm -hmm. So you might think one thing mm. one year and the consistent line might have to do with the rule of law, the role of the Jewish state, mm. but the actual remedy or the actual policy prescription has changed. And one of the things that you've written about lately is the one state solution. Mm -hmm. And I think that surprises a lot of people just hearing the word one state mm -hmm. from you. So do you wanna just elaborate on that a little bit before we turn to other issues? Sure, I mean, one of the things that I think I find kind of comforting, I guess, is in my own thinking, because I have changed my mind about a bunch of things, and I've been just been really flat wrong about some really big and important things, is that when I've read biographies of thinkers, writers who have had an influence on me, you know, uh, I think about someone like Walter Lippmann or Reinhold Niebuhr, two people whose lives really interested me a lot. There was an evolution in their thinking um, in response to events, and they ended up in places in different parts of their life that I think would have been very hard for them to predict or imagine at earlier times because I think they were they were wrestling with changing events. And they were also both, I mean, I think it's part of why it was so influenced both big proponents and then deeply disillusioned by the experience of World War One. And um, you know, for me, in a sense, the having been a supporter of the Iraq War and then trying to kind of pick up the intellectual pieces after that, you know, I've some ways feel like I've been trying to do that ever since. In terms of this question, um, my evolution from supporting, you know, a two-state solution in which you have a, a democratic Jewish state alongside, uh, hopefully, a democratic Palestinian state, um, partly is simply a response to the movement of events. I think one of the, the challenges that was thrown at me 
particularly by Palestinian friends and intellectuals, was what is your metric for accepting that the Palestinian state is no longer possible? Are you at risk of essentially holding this out as a prospect as a way of essentially making peace with an, with an unjust status quo. It becomes a kind of a Godot-like thing that you can check off a box as if to say, I believe in this imagined better future, but in fact, it's past. And what you're really doing is just accepting the status quo. And so that was something that I felt I really had to grapple with if I was going to be taken seriously by people who I respected and who were the people speaking for the population in this conflict that is really suffering the most. Um, and the second thing was that as I started to really try to think outside of those parameters of the two-state solution, which I supported since I was, you know, in high school, since I can start to remember thinking about this, starting in the, in the, with the first intifada of the late 1980s, was to begin to think not just about the one-state solution as a fallback option, but in, in, in about, about some of the ways in which it can answer deeper questions or deeper problems that a two-state solution cannot. For instance, on the question of Palestinian refugees, uh, you know, most of the people who live in Gaza and the Gaza Strip are not from the Gaza Strip. The vast majority of them are refugees. And so it is a very uncomfortable for many Jews, including myself, to ask the basic question that Palestinians ask frequently, which is, why do I have the right? to move to Israel and get citizenship on day one, when a Palestinian born inside what is now Israel or their parents or grandparents does not have that right. And also to think about the tension between the idea of a state that has a special obligation to its Jewish citizens and the notion of equality under the law, which suggests that all people should be equal under the law, irrespective of their religion and ethnicity. And so I think thinking within the framework of one equal state allows one to start to acknowledge those as very serious problems and think about ways of responding to them that you can't within the two-state framework. Uh, you've written about Obama mm -hmm. and Obama's book <laughs> and sort of contrasting what he says in the book to his policies with Israel. And you call him uh, Netanyahu's enabler, basically. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you would been able to have his ear for a moment and say, do this one thing, what would you have said to him? I don't know what I would say to him, to be honest, because although Netanyahu's enabler may sound like I'm indicting him, to be honest, I I'm actually really feel like I'm indicting us. And by us, I mean really the Jewish community, because Obama is a politician and he is not going to... Um, uh, he's not going to do things which are potentially very, very politically dangerous for an outcome which is uncertain. And I think, frankly, especially as the first black president, Obama was more aware than almost anybody else of the ways in which he was seriously hemmed in, in his ability to mount kind of radical critiques on a whole range of issues of kind of sacrosanct American questions. And he also, you know, Obama did not have the kind of activist left at his back, you know, that Biden does, right? It was much weaker, especially in Obama's first term. So Obama is, I think, this incredible figure because he's so self-conscious, right? That he can, he speaks as a politician, but you also know that he's able to step back and see himself and see the situation like a critic would. And so Obama has this fascinating 
line, which I quote in my 2012 book, and then I quote it again in a recent Jewish Currents piece, where he's asked, I think by a kind of some kind of progressive Jewish person during his 2008 campaign about whether he will really mount a challenge to Israeli policy. This is at the time when J Street is just being formed. And Obama recounts an encounter between A. Philip Randolph, the great Black uh, labor leader and Franklin Roosevelt, when Randolph implores Roosevelt to fight for civil rights. And Roosevelt says, I agree with you, but put 10,000 people on the White House lawn and make me do it, which is to say, you change the political reality. And the reality is that the organized American Jewish community, the American Jewish establishment, not alone, certainly with Christian evangelicals as well, is this tremendously powerful blocking force. And we we progressive Jews, we believe that we are a people that became a people in the book of Exodus in slavery and is told 36 times in the Torah to remember the heart of the stranger because we were strangers in the land of Egypt. We have not been able to create a politics, a political infrastructure that is powerful enough to change the political incentives for someone like Barack Obama, who I believe in his heart would want to actually act in pursuit of Palestinian freedom and dignity. Uh, That's a very good segue to us talking about the election that we've just had. And there are a couple of issues that I'd like to ask you about, both of which you've written about. One of which is what happened to the war on terror? You point out that in their last debate, the vice president, president-elect, and President Trump didn't talk about the war on terror. Um, And you basically say, basically, we're at the end of the war on terror. And I just wanted to expound on that a little bit. Mm. Are we at the end of the war on terror? Is that really how you see it? It's a really interesting question. So I guess I would say, I think we are definitely in a moment in domestic politics where the war on terror does not have near the salience it used to. Um, So it obviously had a lot of salience after 9-11 and continuing into the period of time around when Obama was elected, when you had a kind of starting a, a real disillusionment with the Iraq war. And then it, the, there was a kind of a, you could say a kind of war on terror too. Again, in terms of American domestic politics, obviously out there in the world, the United States is doing all of these things, right? So that's not stopping drone attacks, special forces. But in terms of its domestic political sales, which I'm talking about, you see this reemergence with ISIS. And I think that that, my argument in, in which I wrote in the New York Times in, in October was that I think the emergence of ISIS in 2014, 2015, actually helps Donald Trump to win the Republican primary, the attacks in Paris and San Bernardino, and, I, and, and probably helps him in the general election as well. But then the loss of most of ISIS's caliphate and the lack of kind of spectacular terrorist attacks leads that to recede in the public imagination, which I think probably hurts Trump, because I think Trump is playing basically on primal fear. That's a lot of the fuel that fuels Trumpism. In 2016, he had frightening uh, Mexican immigrants, but he also had Islamist terrorists. He didn't have the Islamist terrorists as as much. Um, He was trying to draw from other kind of wellsprings of potential fear and let's be honest, kind of racism. So in terms of kind of where we go from here, it is of course possible that there's a resurgence of ISIS. There are other groups, they do commit terrorist attacks even inside the United States or other places that forces people attention. But I think that if I had to guess, my guess would be that even if we do see some resurgence of these attacks, that we will not return to a place where the war on terror had the political salience it had earlier, because we are into, we're clearly now moving into an area of of serious acknowledged great power conflict. And that 
I do think that the, the conflict with China in particular will increasingly block out the sun in American foreign policy. It will be the dominant story and other things, you know, will not get the same kind of attention because this is so big and so structural in terms of its focus. Now, I should just acknowledge there are a lot of smart people, and again, you know far, far, far more than me about this, who also argue that the war on terror lives on in terms of the way it's changed our institutions and the way in which it's, it's influenced all kinds of things we do domestically, like policing, for instance, right? And I think that's, those are really, really important questions. I don't want to pretend they're, they're not. But again, that's not the same thing as a kind of a, a front, a kind of a, a conversation about the war on terror per se, that's central to American politics. The other thing that I wanted to ask in this regard, in terms of the election, is you've also made the point that uh, Biden very much stayed away from foreign policy, that mm. domestic, the domestic agenda was much of what the campaign was about. And so I'm just wondering what you think that means. How robust do you think Biden's going to be over this? Um, How interested in foreign policy do you think his administration is? I mean, he has a background um, himself in foreign affairs. So where do you see us in terms of the precariousness going forward with the or strength of the Biden administration? I think, you know, generally in American elections, unless the country's at war or Americans feel like there's a risk to them, some kind of direct risk. Foreign policy tends not to be that central an issue. And so this was one of those elections where it wasn't. I think that certainly Biden is very interested in foreign policy. And I think the basic thesis of the case of of a lot of what Biden and his advisors are saying is that there are a lot of things America needs to do uh, uh, overseas, but that unless we come back from COVID-19 and from the economic aftermath of that, and from the serious damage that's done to our democracy, we will be like a car that's trying to go in a bunch of directions in terms of our foreign policy. But again, I don't know why I keep going back to this metaphor. It's actually startly, to be honest, I should, it's partly stolen from Walter Muscle Mead's great book, Special Providence, where he has this metaphor of a, of a car. But um, I think basically that we will be a car trying to go places without a lot of gas in it, right? Because we're just not going to have a lot of power, hard or soft. I mean, we'll have our military, but we're not going to have the kind of the economic, the, the soft power to basically be able to kind of do the kinds of things that they want to do. And so I think that they would say, and it's a cliche, but, you know, I think it makes certain sense that, you know, the foreign policy begins at home, which is to say, if we want to compete with China, if we want to rebuild, build, have some democratic renaissance around the world, that starts with trying to get our own house in order. And that itself is going to be extremely difficult and very, very well. Uh, if I had to bet, I would bet, sadly, that in a lot of ways, they're going to fail in that. So let's talk about what that, what that means. What does it mean to get our house in order? First of all, I think at the most, at the most elemental, it means having a vaccine, rolling it out, convincing people to take it, and getting to a place where a year from now people can have normal life, right? I mean, that's the, the, the first, I think, level. But the second is trying to be able to do something in that, during that period, in that interim, where the economic wreckage isn't so profound by that point that, that many people just can't come back from it, right? To keep businesses alive, to keep people financially alive, to make sure that the kids just don't have a completely lost year of education, all those things. Does Biden have a decent chance of managing a vaccine reasonably, hopefully convincing enough people to take it? I, I think there one could have some cautious optimism there. On the economic front, I am less optimistic because it seems to me that 
it just doesn't seem like we're going to have a, we'll be able to have a big enough stimulus. I mean, we'll maybe get something, but it just seems to me it's likely to be woefully insufficient. And again, sitting, you know, you and I are New Yorkers thinking about what it, New York needs, you know, what the subways need, what CUNY, where I teach needs, what the places need in order not to have a lost decade. You know, you need something bigger than I think what Mitch McConnell is going to go for, or even John Manchin is going to, you know, go for. And then where I'm least optimistic is in the restoration of our democracy, because although I think there's a lot of good things that Biden will be able to do, I ultimately think that he is going to be dealing with a with profound polarization. And I think he's going to basically, he's going to be dealing with a smarter and more sophisticated Trumpism 2.0. I mean, I think basically the future of the Republican Party, it's, you know, it's that Woody Allen line right there, two paths. One leads to to, to dismal, dismal darkness and the other leads to complete death, right? The one path is basically someone with the last name Trump, right? Literally, like Donald Trump or Donald Trump Jr. That's path number one, right? And path number two, which is the better path is like, Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio, Mike Pompeo, Ted Cruz, Nikki Haley, which is more sophisticated Trumpism. I mean, have any of the likely Republican candidates for 2020, 2024 said clearly Joe Biden is the is the illegitimate president of the United States? Right. Like that seems to me a baseline question. The answer is no. Um, and so I'm really I'm pessimistic. We don't yet know who's going to be named secretary of defense. Well, mm -hmm. I think we'll know soon. Anything in particular we should be thinking about? I'm assuming from what you said, China is one of the things we should be thinking about, some real ability to think in terms of great power rivalries. Any other particularly salient things that about this particularly Secretary of Defense that you think is a qualification? What I would like in a Secretary of Defense may be something which is not realistic. What I would like is someone who was open to serious, serious cuts in the defense budget. Partly because I think that there's no way you possibly have the money for the domestic building back that that, that Biden wants um, in a period of high debt, where the Republicans are not going to be able to raise tax. We're not going to raise taxes as much as you want unless you do that. Partly because I actually think it's really important for climate change. You know, it frustrates me to see us talking about the greening of the Pentagon. I think the best way we could green the Pentagon was to make less of it. And that kind of person would, I think, need to be someone who did not have as intimate a relationship with defense contractors and think tanks funded by defense contractors as some of the very prominent candidates do. In fact, all the prominent candidates do. See, this is the problem, right? And when I see the list of people, whether it's Michelle Flournoy or Jed Johnson, all these people are on the basically have intimate relations with defense contractors. The other thing is that I would like a defense secretary who had a very different view on China than I think is the one that I think is going to be dominant in, in the Biden administration and is certainly the view that Michelle Flournoy has. And their basic notion, I think, is Trump was right to get tough, but we need to be multilateral about it. I don't buy this. We need to get tough line. You know, it always sounds good to get tough. I think it's based on a caricature of what the policies actually were under Obama and, and, and before that. And I think, first of all, once you say you're going to get tough, basically it makes it impossible to cut the defense budget. For me, our, our top two most important issues with China are pandemics and climate change. The Spratly Islands is way down the list for me, right? The South China Sea. Um, and I, that, I don't see that prioritization coming out of, out, out of some of the top people in the Biden administration. They're talking about you know, basically spending tons of money on really, really fancy high-tech military stuff to restore U.S. deterrence. 
I want a more serious conversation about what we should be trying to deter and what we should not be trying to deter. Because the power balance is shifting against us in East Asia, whether we like it or not. And I worry a lot about basically writing checks that we can't cash and that no one has asked the American people whether they're willing to cash in terms of whether we're actually willing to fight wars in some of these places. And, and I, wor- I don't see that debate coming out of a lot of the top people, either being considered Secretary of Defense and other positions. Do you think you can separate multilateralism, um, reestablishing multilateral ties or establishing them from getting tough? Well, I think that when we talk about multilateralism, I think we're talking about two different things. Partly, we're talking about universal compacts like the Paris Climate Accord or the WHO, which are meant to solve common problems, right? This was the kind of multilateralism that I think, you know, the notion of some kind of international community where we're all in it together, you know. Um, The second is basically more the kind of the NATO model, which is let's get together with our allies so we can deter or, if necessary, defeat our adversaries, right? Now, I think that the Biden administration is trying to do both, but I worry that there's more emphasis on the latter, And I also worry that the notion of building multilateral alliances to check China is a strategy which is not, I don't think it's going to be very successful. It's really interesting if you read Biden folks on China, and I've been reading a lot of them for a piece I want to write. If you read them before 2020, what a lot of them will say is essentially This whole strategy, this get tough multilateral strategy, it doesn't work without TPP. Because this is the basic point. We can match China militarily, potentially. But where China's running circles around us is in terms of its economic relationships. And the reason that even on Australia, right, which wants very close military relations, these countries are so dependent economically on China that there's, I think, real limits on how much they're going to basically buy into the to the kind of get tough multilateral policy. And so the whole of TPP was basically about giving us a real economic st- foot in that game. And since Biden has had to walk away from TPP and there's no successor to it, I just see a huge gaping hole in the whole multilateral get tough strategy. And I think actually, if you read the Biden folks carefully, they do too. It's just, they don't talk about it anymore because the domestic politics now of on trade have changed so much. A lot of the things that have happened vis-a-vis China um, in terms of China's growing role in the world and the shifting debate inside the United States about that have happened on page A23 rather than page A1 because Donald Trump has basically, you know, dominated page A1. So I think what we were going to what we will see in the coming year I think is a kind of a, a waking up by a broader swath of people to some of the things that we would have been paying more attention to before. So for instance, China's much greater clout in international organizations is one. The second is the degree to which the Republican Party has been reorienting itself around this new Cold War. And I think that will be the binding connective tissue in many ways that binds Republican hawkish elites and Republican kind of nationalist grassroots. And also think I think ultimately allows probably some of the never Trumpers to potentially go back to the Republican Party because this will be Cold War II and they liked Cold War One. So those are a couple of things. I think a third is the very serious and very dangerous impact that this may have on, on the rights and freedoms of Chinese Americans in the United States and the, the kind of McCarthyite assault on people who are perceived to have a connection to China, I think has already been, I think this has also not gotten nearly enough attention in terms of what the FBI and others have been doing 
So I think these are some of the things, the sense of the, of the genuine potential for war over Taiwan. I have talked to people who really follow that very closely, and they, they think it is a, there's, a, there's a real possibility there that if China doesn't mount an all-out assault on Taiwan, they do something short of that, which shakes the stability of the world. Again, I think that's also not something that's on A1. So I think these are all things that I think in the coming year and maybe, or the two years once we get past COVID, I think we'll take center stage more. Well, that brings us to our last question. In all of these dire scenarios and the challenges that we face, where do we find hope? I mean, look, I think that we certainly have seen an extraordinary surge in activism uh, on behalf of human rights, democracy, human dignity, particularly among young people. And uh, in not in the United States, but not only the United States, in in Hong Kong, in Thailand, in Chile, in Nigeria, in Poland. I mean, there are some extraordinary things happening. I mean, all around the world. Now, the, the fate of these movements is very uncertain, but they're mostly being led by young people. And there is an enormous willingness against tremendous, tremendous dangers and risks to try to move us out of this fairly dark moment we're in with this resurgence of authoritarianism and tyranny and um, and the mounting threat of, and the threat of climate change. So that's that's one. And I think the second is just that I, you know, I try to spend part of my day and part of my week connected to things that are in a different time scale than, you know, than just kind of reading the news of the day. And it also makes one realize that these, they're really, really, really long stories. You know, I, I mean, I start every day with an hour of Talmud. And, and when you know, put your, try to put yourself in the mind of people living, you know, in the fifth century, the seventh century, the second century, you, you, kind, of, you kind of realize that like um, there are, it's a really, 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 really long game. And, and a lot of things that we think we understand about, about trajectories and about, uh, um, uh, we don't necessarily understand. Um, so I guess that's a source of humility for me, but also maybe a, a source of hope that in a sense, when we think we have it figured out, we really don't have it figured out. And when we think that um, we, have, we have figured out that, there's, that it's all a disaster, we haven't figured that out either. So in other words, the 21st century, still has a lot of positive places it can go, even though the century is a short time frame <laughs> in terms of the human condition. Okay, Peter Beinert, thank you so much. I love that you brought up Walter Lippmann and Rydell Niebuhr, because I think between the two of them and their combination of hopefulness and pragmatism, you are really taking uh, an intellectual tradition forward to this century. So thank you so much for joining us, and um, I hope you come back. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interest online forum at centeronnationalsecurity.org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.